Welcome everyone to another episode of Revolution Recap. The Revs returned to Gillette this weekend to take a 1-1 draw against DC United. The game had a controversial finish as a questionable branded by handball gave DC United a 90th minute PK, which Wayne Rudy converted, giving both teams one point on the day. Juan Agadello was the lone goal scorer for New England with his third goal of the season in the 61st minute. With the result, the Revs remain in, uh, unbeaten in the Mike Lapper era with one win and two draws over their last three games. Joining me today, I'm, I'm Greg Johnstone, and joining me today, as always, when we have controversy, uh, is Jake Katniss of the Bent Musket. Jake, how's it going? Well, we are from the not-too-far-away area of Central Connecticut, the Northeast Conference Champions of Baseball for 2019, defeating your beloved Bryant Bulldogs. A bad weekend to be a Bulldog, for sure. Oh. Baseball is one of our few sports we take. I, I say take seriously. I should say we compete in. Uh, baseball is a point of pride for us, along with lacrosse. So spring mm. sports are where you're supposed to dominate. Tennis, we're, we're, we maintained our tennis uh, NEC championship this year, I believe. But right. uh, outside of that, it's been a bit of a rough go for us. Um, but moving on immediately from that, I don't really want to go into Bryant baseball this week, <laughs> ob- obvious reasons. I'll also say, too, I'm glad we did not lo- lose to Sacred Heart because, uh, if I remember oh, correctly, God. Bobby Valentine is still the uh, – uh, ad over there so every time we lose to a sacred heart team yes yeah that that hurts yeah it makes me cringe very much and for a while their sacred heart was was kicking our ass and everything so uh we're gonna move on from nec talk immediately and get right into this frustrating one one draw with the the revs and dc united which really overall i mean the revs deserve to take three points on uh the day uh, obviously that handball on branded by in the 90th minute was uh you know, a bit of a tough break for the Revs. Uh, Jake, as the refereeing expert, uh, was that 90th minute call correct? Yes, it absolutely was. And I don't think there's a whole lot we can really complain about here. Um, I'm sure other people will find other reasons to complain. A couple of other potential DC uh, calls, one that was reviewed in the first half, one that wasn't reviewed in the second half. Um, but no, I, I, I will continue to say a particular phrase that, that nothing good happens in soccer um, with your arm at or above shoulder level. And Brandon By's arm is up by his ear. And, and no, he's not protecting his face. The arm was there before the shot. Uh, yes, he's turning away from it, but th- there's, th- there's too much nuance or lack of nuance in the handball rule to where uh, if you have a, a player who has his arm up, and, and, and when we say like a natural defensive position, like arms at sides, things like that, body arms tucked in to the body, um, a, a, an arm that's sort of up and around where the shoulder or the head area is, it has to be very, 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 very close uh, to the body for it to be considered a reaction or protective action. Um, I don't have any problems with the review, um, I don't necessarily love the review. There's still this odd VAR concept of why we're reviewing something that happened 90 seconds ago when New England just went down on a counterattack and almost scored a goal, which would have been wiped out. Um, that process to me, I think, needs to be figured out. Um, but no, the, the, the calls, I think, uh, on their own uh, yesterday were all pretty much correct. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of those issues where uh, 
um, you know, it'll, it'll go back to VAR and yeah, 30 to 60 seconds of the next play is totally wiped out. I think that might have been, I don't know if there's another instance of this, but it would have been something if the revs go down, score a counter attack, go up to nothing. And then there is a literal two goal swing where they mm-hmm. then say it's a penalty kick, take a goal off the board for the revs. And then DC United converts and goes from two to nothing to one, one very, very quickly. That would have been, uh, that would have been something. Um, it is also interesting because there was another VAR review on a potential handball in the ninth minute. Uh, Carlos Hill took a shot. Uh, it hit off a DC United defender's arm, which was to his defense kind of by his side. Uh, and it was ruled no penalty kick. Um, mm-hmm. I want your thoughts on that call as well. And if you think there's substantial differences and if the referee got that one correct also. Yeah. Like I said, in, in a vacuum, I think both calls are, are correct. Uh, when, when we hear the phrase normal or, or natural defense position, arm at your sides, that's pretty much what, what the D.C. defender is. Brandon By has his arm up. It's awkward. Uh, the ball, both calls, the ball literally is almost stopped by the arm. And I think that's where, where people are going to wonder, well, okay, if Brandon By is a handball, we understand that. How, how far away can the arm be? Like, you know, how much bigger can you be if your arms are, have to be at your sides? How much leeway is there? Um, you know, no, the arm wasn't like tucked into the body, um, but it clearly struck the arm and went pretty much straight down. Um, is there a way that the rule can be nuanced or interpreted to where, look, you can have your arms at your side, but if the ball hits the arm and it drops, not a deflection, like it actually, we're talking hit the arm, come straight down. Is there a way where the rule, because you're still, you're, you're now gaining advantage of, as a defensive player? Is there a way that, that the laws of the game can be interpreted to where maybe it's not a penalty, maybe it's an indirect free kick um, and things like that? And, and that's sort of where now in, in the age of replay, we have these rules that are still evolving. And now they're being you know hyper-focused in slow motion and uh, video replay. And, and I don't think that the laws uh, have caught up to the technology yet. We're still getting there. Uh, and I think when that happens, when there is more guidance on the specifics of a lot of these situations that we're now going to see in review, we're going to see in far more detail what the the IFAB and FIFA and Pro and MLS, what the leagues and, and, and directors want the rule or want the results of these types of plays to be. And that's going to take um, some time as we introduce VAR uh, into the game in the next uh, few years. Yeah, VAR is certainly a work in progress, and I feel like it's been a work in progress since they've uh, introduced it. And, you know, you, you say nothing good happens when your arm is up near your head. It seems like nothing yeah. good happens when they go to VAR. So, uh, no, it, no, nothing. There is, there is nothing, you know, VAR is there, you know, we talk about the phrase like clear and obvious error. You take a swing at someone and the cameras catch it, you're going to be gone. It's not just going to affect the next game where it said, oh, well, the referee missed that. Now you're out for three games. Like, no, it's going to affect that game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are these are good things. We want those types of things to happen. Um, we want more thing, more emphasis on player safety to eliminate certain decision-making, Matt Turner, uh, that we'll get to here in a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I think overall, like I said, you know, VR, it is a work in progress, and I think people need to understand – it's not always going to be perfect, and and the the correcting of a clear and obvious error, um, the the review process is very similar, in my opinion, to the NFL. We just don't word it like that because reasons. Um, in the NFL, it says, "Hey, we're going to review the play." At the end of the play, 
and I've said this in a column beginning of the season, the end of the play, we need the referee to communicate verbally to the fans, to the audience, to someone uh, on the TV cameras, just like Ed Hockley and everyone does in the NFL. The result of the play is this. It stands, it's overturned, it's confirmed. Whatever phraseology you want to use, borrow it from the NFL. We're overviewing, we're overturning this play because of this. The result of the play is a penalty. That's all you have to do. We understand you're going to point to the spot. Everyone's going to line up for the penalty. But explain what happened. We reviewed the play for a handball on this. We have confirmed it is a handball. Be done with it. It takes an extra 10 or 15 seconds. You're going to clear up all that confusion that happens after the play because you've already explained it. Figure out a way where if the captain wants to ask a question, you can do that. But there shouldn't be another 30 or 45 seconds of arguing after VAR decisions have already been made. I think that's, uh, to me, the biggest part of the process that needs to be cleaned up is the communication aspect. Um, everyone should know right away what the call is going to be, uh, how much maybe time is going to be put back on the clock for stoppage, uh, because you're right, you did have you lost not just a minute of play from the Revolution counterattack, you lost another minute, two minutes from the review. So now how much time is going back up on the clock um, does that time for the revolution counterattack get back added on? All these things I think need to be uh, communicated and are should be far more clear in what the league or the laws want it to be. Yep. And I just want to kind of touch on one of our Twitter questions right now at the beginning of the show because this is involving VAR. But someone asked about the rules of VAR, who, and he said that uh, I thought it had to be a clear and obvious mistake to even go look at it. To my understanding, Jake, and, and you kind of clarified this, um, it, you, you can look at any questionable calls, but it has to be clear and obvious right. to overturn it, right. uh, similar to and, NFL. So I think that's just right. important to kind of address right at the beginning that that's what we're looking at. And that's again, that's the standard of, look, we're reviewing the play. We want to overturn it. it. For me, I think overturning the Brandon my penalty is accurate. I think if the, the D.C. review, if you want to say the ruling on the field stands, meaning, yes, we know it hit, we know it hit an arm. We don't have enough evidence to overturn it because we think the arm is mostly in a natural position. I have no problem with that, but I want that communicated. I can right. understand if you haven't, you don't have enough evidence to overturn it. That's fine. VAR is not perfect. It is not designed to be perfect. Review is not there to get everything 100% accurate. Right. And that standard is something that we need to eliminate from our minds. It's not here to be perfect. Right. It's here to improve what the referees can and can't do on the field. And credit to the Rebs broadcast team, too, that I think explained the reasons for why the referees overturned or didn't overturn the calls yesterday. I think they got both of them right, and they seem to explain the logic very well. But there, it's a very good possibility that broadcast teams, whether or not they're homers and have bias, or and this isn't specific, talking about the Rebs broadcast team specifically, but I'm just saying in general, an MLS broadcast team is, is trying to explain what the referees are and are not seeing there. And that's not their job. The referees should be explaining why they're making a call instead of just pointing to a spot it doesn't seem to be the most efficient way to do things. So anyway, um, let's talk about the, uh, let's complain about the actual game now. Um, Jake, do you have a key takeaway from this match? You know, in the three games of the Mike Lapper era, the revolution have given up to my count. I believe two goals, one goal, basically a 90th minute PK. The other goal, basically a 90 minute stoppage time garbage goal against San Jose. That's effectively 270 minutes of regulation soccer where the revolution haven't given up a goal and they've gotten all the way to stoppage time before bad things start to happen. That is probably one of the best stretches of defense this team has played. Um, not surprisingly, since the Brad Friedel era began 
and and I have issues with how the revolution have gotten to that point in this whole let's only have the ball for like 25% or 33% of the time. Let's have Andrew Farrell play center back. Um, let's have Jalila Baba be the other center back and, and Brandon By and Juan Jones is the fullback. I don't like how the results, how we've gotten to this point, but I'm also really shouldn't be complaining because I am happy to see 90 minutes of organized, competent, basic soccer. And this team was so far removed from that that Mike Lapper in the better part of two and a half weeks has brought the team far closer to, you know, being not terrible uh, than they were at the beginning of the month. And I'm, I'm very happy to see that overall, that change of, okay, let's learn how to be organized. Let's learn how to play defense. Now let's figure out how to attack. Let's figure out how to create chances. Let's figure out how to finish. Uh, Cause we still can't do that part of it, but you know, baby steps. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add on to that, you know, Two or three weeks ago, the revolution went from setting the MLS record for most yep. goals conceded in a three-goal span. I think they were one or two away from setting the record for a four-goal span. And as you say, the last two games, they've conceded one goal. It was a 90th-minute PK that was a bit unlucky. And for the majority of those two games, their back line was Brandon By. Andrew Farrell at center back, Jaleel Anibaba, who was not a starting center back on this team at the beginning of the season, and Dewan Jones, who is getting his first experience as an outside back this season. He's a rookie. So, I mean, I think if you had told me at the beginning of the season that we'd have meaningful minutes where that is our back line, I'd be horrified. But they're playing very Mm -hmm. well. They're playing very solidly defensively. We haven't seen a lot of defensive errors. Um, It seems like switching out Brad Friedel has been a total breath of fresh air. Uh, So I think think you can tell mentally this entire team not just the back line but across the board they're making uh, much better strides as a team and, and putting in a much better effort but the defense has come a long long way compared to last season where they were bleeding goals um, mm-hmm. you know I think at the end of the season we're going to see them being you know if you look at the total number of goals they gave up I think that stretch that, that horrific stretch they had in last month is going to kind of put them where they were around the same as last year in terms of, of total number but um, their defense has improved leaps and bounds uh, and, and they had a really really solid game yesterday as well yeah and I, I said that various I don't know if I said it here but other other people that I talked to in, in the wake of the Brad Friedel era um, when you're giving up four or five goals at a clip all you have to do to get back to not being terrible is just give up one goal you can lose one zero and you've already improved four or five hundred percent from what you were doing several weeks ago and the turnaround doesn't surprise me um, it's the fact that that type of a turnaround, just to return to a basic, we're going to play 4-4-2. I want two banks of four. I want, you know, one holding mid, always tracking this guy, like just very basic principles. And you see the results, and then you just wonder how it got to that point yeah. and why a change two months, you know, a month and uh, one year and two months into a brand new head coach, why you have to, to make a change that quickly. Um, just a... a both a stunning and not so stunning revelation for this team the past couple of weeks. And moving on to my key takeaway, I'm going to go to the other end of the field. And I know that, you know, they have not been pouring in goals. Uh, as you said, uh, they, they still seem to be a little bit off in terms of finishing and, and scoring. Uh, but I think Juan Agadello is starting to turn a bit of a corner and uh, he's really improved. I think this season, he's really had a step up. I think playing him kind of more in the central part of the field has been a positive development for him. Uh, had another goal yesterday, a really strong header uh, in the 61st minute 
uh, might have been the 62nd minute. I, I have 62nd down on this piece of paper, but my memory says 61st. Either way, third goal of the season. Um, he's doing a lot of things well. He's doing a really good job in possession and moving the ball. Uh, I think he had another great performance yesterday. Um, I, I think he's got to be starting going forward, especially with Diego Fagundes apparently out. We'll get to that later too. But um, I, I think, you know, considering coming into the season, we were really confused about where Juan Agadello fit onto the field, where he would play. Is he going to be shoved back out to the wing? Are they going to try to play him up top? Um, where is he going to go? And it seems like he's uh, really fit in well. As I say too, I think Mike Lapper um, removing Brad Friedel has been a breath of fresh air for him as well. Um, he's played really, really well in the past few weeks. And, and I think that he's going to be a staple in this lineup and one of the most, one of the key players for the Revs going forward. Yeah. It's an interesting group where, where you, I'm not really sure, if, you know, the MLS website always listed Aguidero as a center midfielder uh, next to, to Carlos Gil uh, on, on this game, which I thought was probably not accurate. Uh, it seemed to me like it was mostly a four-four-two. Um, maybe Aguilera was sort of bu- dropping back in the midfield, sort of as a, a weird false nine, ten kind of sort of player. Um, but it's very interesting how how New England's going to move forward with, with Lapper or, or Bruce Arena. You you have all these attackers. Um, there's only you know two outside midfield spots and two striker spots, or or some combination of um, you know a striker and two wingers. Like there's there's a, a balance of we have all these attacking players. How are we going to get them all into a lineup effectively? Is that going to mean more of Buchanan on the wing, uh, more of Pania up top, uh, Diego out wide? Like, there's all these options that I feel like New England is still yet to figure out uh, because they're focusing kind of on the defensive end, which is a little bit of a mess, um, despite the fact that it's playing well. So I, I think that's something that's going to be interesting is, is Aguilar going to be in a set role or is he going to be moved around to – either open up opportunities for himself or other opportunities uh, for other players. Uh, like we used to see Pania and uh, Diego switch on the wings all the time last year. Yep. And uh, just to give the total stat line for Juan Aguadello, uh a goal, obviously uh, he had a 77% pass accuracy, 13 for 18 in the attacking third, had two chances recovered or, or sorry, two chances created and six ball recoveries. So um, really good performance on both sides of the ball, really, really for Juan Aguadello. Um He does seem to be tracking back and contributing a little bit more on, on defense too. Um, but getting to, you know, having all of these attackers and getting them onto the field. I think there's one guy that a lot of people are very frustrated with uh, and would argue that shouldn't be on the field. And that's Teal Bunbury. Um, had another rough game yesterday. Two shots, but both were off targets. Both of them headers. Um, one of them was really an open header that he should have done a little bit better on from a, a I think it was a Juan Agadello uh, uh, cross and that Bunbury just headed really not very close to the far post. But uh, he had 67% pass accuracy, eight for nine in the attacking third. So it wasn't a total mess for Teal Bunbury. He also created two chances. Um, Jake, what were your thoughts on Teal Bunbury? And do you think that he's getting towards the end of his rope? Do you think he, we might see him relegated to the bench soon? I mean, depending in the Brad Friedel press in that style, uh, Teal Bunbury's uh, motor and engine are, are very much a benefit. And he's going to do a lot more things without the ball than he is going to do with the ball. Um, but last year, Teal was so opportunistic in the first half of the season, scoring wise, he hasn't gotten back to that. So I would probably like to see more of Teal in a like a, a true like box to box midfield role, more of a support role rather than the either lone striker or one of the two strikers. Figure out a way how to get Aguidello up top more, 
And maybe that's with Pania. Maybe that's with Buchanan. Maybe that's with J.F. Caicedo. I have no idea. Um, I still have no problems with Tilbunbury being on the field. But like the rest of the offense, we need to figure out what role he's best suited in and who he's best suited to play with. And I think maybe giving other people opportunities up top, letting him focus on more of that passing, more of that recovery stuff that Aguidelo has been doing. Figure a way how to balance it out. You know, Teal Bunbury can help this team almost when you least expect it. But if you're asking him to be, you know, a Kai Kamara in the box, it's not really what he does. He's not an aerial threat. Um, if you're asking him to be, you know, this great finisher, yeah, he's been able to do that occasionally. But, you know, like I said, there, there's there's a way to get him involved that doesn't involve him being on the ball. And I feel like the next couple of weeks in the Bruce Arena era, we're going to discover is that where Bruce wants him to play? Does he want him up front as a striker? Or does he want him more in that support role out wide, particularly wide right, which has been an area I think the Revs have been sorely, sorely lacking in, uh, whether it's Buchanan or by. Um, is that a role that he can sort of solidify and just be like, you know, hey, we're going to use you box to box. Let Brandon by overlap. Let Farrell overlap. But we want you to really, you know, pinch in and support um, and get everyone else involved up top and, and, and sort of be almost like another playmaker from that role. Yeah, it's curious to see what they do with Teal going forward. And I think I said a few weeks ago, I wouldn't be totally opposed to, I, I know he would see this as a demotion, but I feel like if you went to USL, I, there's no international break for the USL. I, I mean, I, I, I mentioned to Sean that, you know, I, I think if you send Teal Bunbury down to USL, get him a goal. If he just puts one goal in the net, mm-hmm. I, I think that we're going to see him start pouring in. I, I still think he's kind of maybe suffering a bit of a lack of a confidence thing. But, uh, you know, I I think Teal Bunbury gets one goal in the net. Uh, I, I think we're going to see more of him. And, you know, he's a better player than what we're seeing. He's a better finisher than what we're seeing. And I don't know. I He, he does contribute in other phases of the game. But I feel like you can't have your lone striker or your key striker uh, uh just missing the chances that he's been missing um mm-hmm. and we didn't do a podcast last week um i heard through the grapevine he had another shot go up for a throw in <laughs> so uh, i think that makes three this season uh so not to pile on not to pile on but um be nice to see a couple goals i'm and as i say i'm rooting for him i, I think we're gonna see him get some more minutes but whew, it's been a tough one uh moving on to you mentioned though teal Bunbury going to the right wing uh starting again uh, this week was Tayon Buchanan who started on the right wing. Uh, he came off in the uh, 60th, 60th minute, somewhere around there, uh, mm-hmm. when there was a certain red card that we'll get into later that I don't want to talk about <laughs> right now. Uh, but Tayon Buchanan had uh, two shots, none on target, a 57% pass accuracy. Um, statistically, it didn't seem like he did a whole lot, but uh, I think he showed a little bit of promise. There was really nice uh, couple passes he had with uh, Brandon By in the first half where he had a kind of a chip pass down to Brandon By. Brandon By did a kind of a back heel back to Tayon on Buchanan and Buchanan scuffed the shot. Um, that was a nice little chance created. Obviously we saw Buchanan create some chances in Kansas city. Um, he's shown some flashes of potential here and there. Um, do you think Buchanan gets another start and what do you think of his performance today on the right wing? I don't necessarily think I love him as a winger. It seems like he's a little unsure of, should I be defending? Should I be attacking? Should I be going forward? Um, that's, I think, going to be the biggest adjustment for him is going to be positional-wise. I think the farther up the field you get him, the more dangerous he is. If you're asking him to be more of a box-to-box type, I'd rather have Bunbury doing that, or I'd rather have Diego doing that, uh, even. And I didn't think a few years ago I'd ever say that about Diego. Um, Or even Jones. If we're going to play Jones at fullback, I have no problem with Jones being a box-to-box midfielder either. Um, 
so yeah, that, you know, Buchanan, like I said, he, he's shown flashes. I think I want to get him farther up the field. Um, I think he's more dangerous when he's on the ball near the box um, because I think he can create for himself and for others. Um, so pushing him farther away and asking him to do a little bit more defensive things right now, that, that might be just a little bit of a step too far. Um, but, for, you know, what I'm seeing, again, from an organizational standpoint, the way that the lineup has been functioning, um, if Buchanan can go in there and, and function as a, a pure, like, right midfielder, um, I think he's going to be fine. Uh, there's just, you know, you have to just refine the attacking lineup, you know, figure out a way how to get, you know, I think in general, just a lot of the Reds just aren't getting the ball that far up the field. I never see Carlos Gill up the field with the ball. He's always tracking back to get it. You know, Agudelo tracking back to get the ball. Um, we need to figure out a way how to get these guys out on the break a little bit more, I think. Uh, and Buchanan and Jones and Pena, all those guys, you get them out running, now you're going to create a lot of problems. And I feel like that didn't really happen uh, too often against D.C. Yeah, and I think Labbert made comments about that at halftime where he said that, you know, we have a lot of guys that are, you know, have great speed. We need Jones to use his speed. We need Brandon Body to use his speed. We need Buchanan to use his speed. Um, and it just wasn't happening. They, they were a little bit, I don't want to say slow, but it didn't seem to click just yet. And I think Labbert had something after the game where he said that we're just about – we're – on the cusp of putting it all together. I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but um, it makes a lot of sense that I think they're, they've kind of found their lineup uh, and, and they did create a lot of half chances, so to speak, uh, but no real clear cut chances. And um, I don't know. It, it seems like the team is on the verge of, uh, I don't know, putting it all together. Um, but switching over to the other wing too, uh Christian Pena, who has been in and out of the lineup throughout this season. He's had a bit of a turbulent year after being one of the Rebs' most important pieces last year. Um, had the assist on the one Agadella goal. Really, really nice assist for him. Uh, he had four shots, uh, none of them on target, including one that was uh, Teal Bunbury-esque, I should say. Just a total, I think the, the term that they used on the broadcast was it was, a, it was corkscrewed wide. It was a wild shot. But 76% pass accuracy, two chances created for Pena. He had seven ball recoveries, which I thought was interesting because I don't necessarily think he put in a lot of effort uh, on the defensive side of the ball. But, um, Jake, uh, what did you think of Christian Pena? Uh, positive step for him moving forward in the rest of the season? Yeah, I think this was one of Pena's you know, better games for a, for a team that really hasn't looked all that dangerous. Uh, and, and to be fair, hasn't been able to get a ton of shots off. Uh, getting Pania to get, even if he's just firing off four shots, even if they're not good shots, and that one corkscrew shot probably is not the best decision. I don't care. This team needs to shoot more, and guys like Pania and Aguidello and even Bunbury need to need to shoot more. And this this goes back to a problem I think is more in the, the, the Lewin era a couple of years ago, where it's just like you're getting all these chances near the box, and no one is shooting. If you're going to go out on the break, I don't have a problem if it's a if it's a you know two revs on three defenders and someone just decides you know what I'm going to take a half step somewhere in one direction I'm going to fire off a shot. I have no problem with this team doing that. They need to do it more often. It'll probably create a few corners, probably create a few unhappy shots. But you know, shooting in general for not just the revs, just the league in general has been mostly bad uh, this year. Um, you know, the revs take you know 14 shots. A decent number of them inside the box. Most of them get blocked. Um, there, there just needs to be more of that. And and I feel like there are too many games where the Revs settle for a lot of long distance shots and and poor shots. And when they get into dangerous areas, so I don't have a problem with with you know Pania and others deciding. You know what? I'm gonna have a go here um, because that's something that I've always felt like this team needs to do more of. Uh, other teams seem to have no problem doing it. Um, you know, DC's firing off, you know, 21 shots, majority of them also in the box getting blocked. 
Um, you know, so what if it gets blocked? Odds are it's probably going to go out, uh, you know, for a corner. Um, and a few others, you know, and, and those are the other opportunities the Revolution need to improve on. You know, they used to, I feel like, get almost 10 corners a game. And from those 10 corners, maybe generate one half chance. Um, you know, half chances sometimes lead to other half chances. Um, and that's something that I think New England has struggled on uh, a lot the past few years. Yeah, and I don't know. I, I feel that Pena, you know, obviously he had the assist on the Juan Agadello goal. Uh, he had a couple of nice one-on-one moves as well. Uh, I think that now that the Revs are putting kind of some talented attackers out there, I think they're letting Christian Pena get back to his kind of um, attacking one-on-one, uh, I don't know, strength, I should say, Uh and yeah, I, you know, I, I don't really have an issue with Christian Pena taking long shots too, because as you say, it's the Revs are finding um, difficulty working the ball inside. So um, I, I think he, he, Christian Pena had a really solid game. I know he kind of played his way out of the lineup a, a, a few weeks ago, but um, you know, he's one of the more talented people players on, on this team, and uh, I think they need him going forward. Um, moving on to the defensive side of the ball, I think we need to mention. Uh, probably the key event of the, the game. There is a red card. It was a little unfortunate. Matt Turner, there's a long ball for Wayne Rooney. Matt Turner comes out to get the ball. And Matt Turner, it looks like he just slips. I think that's on the grounds crew. Um, and what ends up happening is Matt Turner essentially slips and accidentally body checks Wayne Rooney. Um, so it was a red card. It was really unfortunate for Matt Turner. Um, Jake, is that how you saw it? I, I No fault to Matt Turner, correct? Um. I think you're putting it a little bit generously. It looks he, he clearly trips over something, uh, um, and that's on the I grounds really, crew. It's on the grounds crew. It's not on Matt Turner at all. I want just remember, remember the beginning of the episode how I said nothing good ever happens when a defender's arm is up near his shoulder or his head. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything ever good comes from a goalkeeper jumping three feet in the air at the top of his box. And the other player can just basically stand there and be like, oh, I'm about to draw a charge. This is going to be great. Um, this. Matt Turner clearly excited for the Stanley Cup finals tonight. <laughs> just wanted to practice his body checking. I don't see yeah, anything this, wrong it, with that. It, it, it's, it's a worthy 10-minute uh, game. This con- I'm sorry, a red card. Um, it Officially, I believe this went down as a denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. We can debate whether or not it was or it wasn't. Uh, I want to explain to all the kids out there. Um, kids, if you ever want to know how a goalkeeper can commit a serious foul play red card, I'm just going to give you that example right there. That is textbook. Um, it's it's a more of a bad decision than it is something that's like dangerous or endangering the safety of an opponent. Um, I don't know why Matt's jumping there. I really don't. Um, if he wants to slide through and just completely dump Rooney on his backside... Um, that's one thing. Um, the power bomb's a little unnecessary. Um, I don't know if he's a, a SmackDown or Raw guy, but uh, it's. Um, I think it's something that Matt's going to hear from the disciplinary committee about. I wouldn't be shocked if this is a, a two-game uh, type of a play. Um, not nearly as bad as I think it was Donovan Ricketts a handful of years ago in Portland. But Donovan Ricketts did a sliding challenge where he two-footed someone in the stomach. And, yes, he got ejected for denial of a goal scoring opportunity, but also I want to explain to everyone else, that's a different kind of serious foul play uh, red card. That's one that is endangering the safety of your opponent because uh, you two-footed someone in the chest. And it doesn't matter if you're a goalkeeper or a midfielder, you're going to get red carded for that. And uh, I think the same thing here. I think that 
even if Matt isn't a goalkeeper. Um, a play like that's going to earn you a red card, I think, uh, no matter what. Uh, it's, it's 2019. Kids, we need to teach you how to make better decisions, and, and we're going to show that, that video of Matt's replay, I'm sure, a, a handful of times over the years. Um, things to not do when faced with a one-on-one situation and Wayne Rooney you know, is that other guy. Yeah, yeah, I, I have a difficult time actually trying to figure out what happened because um, the ball was he wasn't close to the ball. It almost looks like he's jumping over the ball, and um, I'm not sure if he's trying to get out of the way or if I, I, I'm not sure what he was thinking. Yeah, it, when I say it's it's a poor decision, it's also a I I don't know what exactly the decision was. Um, the, the entire play is very very confusing. Um, I'm sure Wayne Rooney was as surprised as anyone that why is Matt? Oh God, Matt Matt Turner's on top of me. Um, yeah, a little that the whole situation is a little bit um, odd. Um, and just you know, Matt, Matt will learn it. It's you know, it's a, a slightly better thought process. I think there was a little bit more help there than, than Matt realized. Um, you know, you get, but you have to the rule number one of goalkeepers: uh, play and try and find the ball, um, even if you don't. Rooney on his backside outside of the goal, and I read card here for the dial of goal scoring opportunity. You were making a play on the ball. I don't know what play Matt is trying to make there. Yeah, but right. he's not playing the ball, and this is this is where I say the disciplinary committees. Oh, I think they review most of the red cards anyway. This is where I say you know Matt. I think Matt's going to get a second game for this because I think that this is a, a serious foul play that extends beyond just the denial of the goal scoring opportunity. Um, this was a, a bad decision. Um, and yes, you know, sort of, you know, spearing or power bombing uh, Wayne Rooney is not something you should be attempting to do uh, anyway, whether on, on accident uh, or on purpose. Um, so we might need to figure out um, who's going to lead the uh, Turner train for the next uh, couple of weeks. Yeah, well, it'll be, it probably will be Jedi Knight in, uh, in goal for the next few weeks, I would say. Um, and, and Knight actually played very well. Um, actually guessed yeah. right on that penalty, but Wayne Rooney's shot was too powerful for him to stop. Well, and also let's not forget the, the ensuing free kick right after that. Right. Yep. Uh, also got saved. And I, I think when, when people say like, well, why is, you know, Cropper, you know, never on the bench or why, why is it always Knighton, uh, on the bench? Uh, kids, this is why Knighton's always on the bench because he comes in and he does stuff like that. And you're not even surprised. It's like, Oh, way to go, Brad. Um, you know, that's why he's there. That's why he's the veteran. Um, I think he's pretty much cemented into that number two spot where, hey, if we need someone to come off the bench, we want it to be Brad. That's not to say that Matt and Cody aren't capable goalkeepers. No, they, they are more than capable, but I'd rather have them starting. And if something you know weird or bad happens, no, 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 I, Brad, go. I want you to handle that. Yeah, and, and I mean, on that note, do you think Knighton gets the start next week over Cropper? I mean, I assume since he is in as the backup, but... Part of me thinks that there might be this play the kids mentality and they might want to give Cody Cropper another start while Matt Turner is suspended for one or um, more games. Do you think there's any chance we see Cropper or do you think Knighton's earned his spot? He's, I think he certainly played very well yesterday. I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it, I don't have a problem with it either way. If, if you if you want to say that, you know what, Brad earned it because Brad came in off the bench and did very well, I have no problem with that. If you are in this, well, we want to play the kids more often, then I'm also fine with that. And, and I'm sure to a certain extent... Uh, Brad might understand that um, as well. Um, certainly, I would, you know, be figuring out a way how to get, you know, Brad some minutes, whether that's um, a couple of starts here or there. If you want to designate um, him as the Open Cup guy and sort of alternate between Matt um, and Cody as needed in the league or, or vice versa. Um, I think that's another position where, where you know, Arena is going to come in and go like, all right, wh- who do we really want here? 
you know, we've kind of sort of got two number one types that are young, fairly experienced in the league, uh, and we have a really, really solid, if not above average, backup uh, at the number two spot. Um, you know, are you going to see a trade? Um, is is that how Arena is going to start off uh, the summer? Is you're going to see um, one of either uh, Cody? I would think probably more likely Cody um, on the trading block. You're going to see someone like a Diego on the trading block, even a Teal on the trading block. Uh, you know, things like that. You know, how how is the roster going to shape up? the next couple of months when the window opens, you know, are, you know, some of these, some of these games could, could help determine that. Yeah. And we'll, we'll come back to playing kids in a second, but uh, just because you're on the topic of the summer uh, transfer window, um, I think it's worth noting that there was a pretty big glaring omission uh, from the 18. Uh, and that was Diego Fagundes. Who's no longer, who wasn't on the bench at all. Uh, he certainly, uh, seemed to send a message when he did not greet Mike Lapper when he was substituted off in Montreal two weeks ago. Um, his father slash agent sent out a tweet right after lineups were announced that changes were coming. Uh, certainly that's something that, you know, he's done in the past. He, he hinted at the end of last season that Diego might be moving on. And then of course there were the uh, rumors where Diego talked to a radio station in Uruguay and said he would love to play in Uruguay. Um, what are your thoughts on Diego Fugundes? Do you think we've seen him play his last game in a uh, revolution uniform? And do you think he's going to be gone uh, once the summer transfer window opens? I, I mean, it, nothing at this point surprises me. Um, the revolution, you know, organization, we're overhauling the organization right now. And at some point that's going to involve overhauling the roster as a whole. Um, I certainly think we've probably seen the last of Michael Mancian and Gabriel Somi in, in serious roles, whether or not they leave this summer or at the end of their contracts, which I think are both up this year. No one quote me on this. I believe so um, too. I can back you up on that. Okay. So I'm not crazy. You know, you're going to see, you know, more moves. You're going to see more guys like, you know, the, your Jalila and Bobbage. You're going to see a few more of those uh, types of players. Um, you know, the equivalents of your Javon Watsons and your Daigo Kobayashi's. The guys that used to be sort of on the back end of the rosters for other teams, but the Revolution have been relying on them more. I think, you know, Bruce Arena still loves that type of player, and I do too. So I think you're going to see probably a few trades. Um, and also because, you know, the Revolution, I don't know what's in the war chest right now. There's been a lot of players who've been going out, not a lot of players that have been really coming in. Uh, so, you know, if, the you know, the some of the... the TAM contracts and everything else. If you need a few players to go out, you know, Diego certainly would be very high on that list as far as what you could get back from either a transfer or a trade within the league. Um, you know, so we have, we have to see, you know, there's, there's, there's sort of a, a multi-step, you know, process here to this rebuild. Uh, and this summer transfer window is a, a huge part of that. Uh, not only are you building already for 2020, um, you know, you're going to have to figure out, you know, hey, are we still competing in 2019 or, you know, do we want to turn over the striker position to Justin Rennick when he gets back from uh, Poland? Right. Uh, do we want to just see, you know what, let's see if we put, you know, Buchanan, you know, Rennick, um, maybe even Firmino mm -hmm. or, or Jones out in the wing. Let's see what the three of them can do up top. You know, there's going to be probably a few games or decisions like that. Um and if that means you have to move on from a few of the veterans or a few of the mainstays, I think we should all be prepared for that to happen because it, it will probably sooner rather than later. And it should be mentioned, too, that there were a few articles that were published last summer 
Um, one of them was by Matt Doyle. I forget who had the other one, but they do trade values, MLS trade value. And Diego Fagundes at this time last year was a top 25 asset. I mean, he's on a very small contract where he makes uh, 160, 180,000. Um, yeah. he, he had great output last year. He had a really, really good season last year mm-hmm. until he was moved to the wing and moved to the bench and they, they tried him, you know, Friedel moved him around. Um, I, I think the one thing that really irks me, I'm fine moving on from Fagundes and I think it's best for both parties at this time. Um, but it really irks me that they have seemingly killed his value similar to how they killed Lee Wynn's value and similar to how they killed Kellen Rowe's value. Um, and that I, I think it just kind of bugs me that it seems like that this, you know, Diego Fagundes in a revolution uniform in 2019 didn't seem like a happy marriage marriage very much. It seemed like Friel wasn't a huge fan of him coming into the season. It seemed like Fagundes was not a huge fan of him uh, coming into the season either. Uh, and so here they are at the summer window and it's kind of a similar Lee win hostage situation where they're not going to get equal value for him. Uh, and they're going to have to see what they can get. They'll still get some assets for him. He's got a year and a half remaining on his contract or half a year plus an option year. Someone will happily take him at that price. Um, but I, I think it's very frustrating thinking that if we had done this six months ago, um, there'd be a much bigger uh, treasure chest coming back to New England. Uh, and instead, we'll probably get a Lee Win type return, which is still very good. But um, I'm not very pleased that they've seemingly killed off another player's trade value. So No, and, and you also have to remember that you're, you're talking about the trade value of not just Diego, but also Lee, probably also Kellen. Um Yes, you probably got far more than you should for Nemeth and maybe even Kai. Um, but yeah, the, you know, the, the New England Revolution have always sort of been one of those teams that I used to always pride Mike Burns in. I said, look, anytime you make a trade, you guys usually win it. Um, those those last three, you know, Kellen, Lee, possibly Diego, um, you, you need to really win the Diego. If you trade Diego, you have to win that trade. Um, and I'm like I, like you said, I don't know with his current value – if that's something they're going to be able to do. Uh, before we move on, John Trainer, we'll do another Twitter question. John Trainer asks us, uh, after being left out of the 18, what are the chances that Diego is gone next window? I, I think it's more likely than not. I'd put a, the chances around 80%. Do you agree? Think that's too aggressive? Um, no, I don't. I mean, I would certainly, you know, I, I'd probably have it around like, you know, 65 to 70, you know, percent, like a two and three chance. Um, you have so many players, uh, younger players at that. Um, that are in the mix now uh, between Bai, between Jones, between Renix, between, uh, you know, even Pania and Firmino. There's, there's so many more players at that position that at some point, if you believe in the youth movement, someone like Diego, who at some point you're going to have to, you know, extend his contract and probably get him far closer to a TAM deal, um, that moving on from him from a business standpoint, from a, Patriots-esque mindset, I hate that phrase, um, that moving on from Diego is is perfectly acceptable for a variety of reasons. Um, there might not be a, a true, not so much roster spot on the team for him, but a true role for him. Um, if you're not going to play him in the middle of midfield where you had him last year, you're going to play him on the wing. And there are still debates, as far as I'm concerned, as to what his best position is. And I still don't know. Um, and he's been a professional now for a very, very long time. I should not know what his – I shouldn't have doubts about what his best position is. Um, you know, he had a very good year last year as a central playmaker. You out and go and sign a central playmaker. Yeah, there's just questions, and, and Diego might be caught up in the, the, the back end of them as the uh, expendable party in the answer. Right. 
And, you know, as you say, you mentioned the Patriots, uh, who always do great business, as you know. Um, you know, if you're looking at this from a contract perspective, you either want to, you know, if you trade him now and he's got one and a half years of a favorable contract left, that is more valuable than trading him at the end of the year when mm-hmm. he's got one year of a favorable contract left. So the longer you hold on to him, that value goes down, not even from a talent perspective, just from a contract perspective. Um, right. The longer the revs hold on to him, the, the worse it's going to get. And, and I, I, I want to add that to my point of why I'm a little frustrated they did not move on from him in the winter. But I digress. Um, we are talking about uh, the... Um, the youth movement and the young kids coming up. I, I do want to hop back into that because there were two interesting additions to the 18. Nicholas Firmino made the 18. He's made it a few times before, but usually they're a little short staffed. Um, also making the 18 was Zachary Haravu. Uh, I believe that's the first time he's made the 18. Don't quote me on that, but he is, he hasn't made many appearances in the 18. Uh, so what were your thoughts on those two being included from the 18? Do you think this is kind of turning a page and starting to play the kids a little bit more? I think yes. Um, I also think, and, and again, we're still assuming that Michael Mancien and Antonio De La Mea are healthy and or not fully healthy, and maybe they're they're not on the bench for those reasons. Um, we talked about this before the show. Um, I think the conspiracy theory for Haribo is he was the he was the center back on the bench. If if they needed a center back, he had played there for Haiti. He, I think you said he had a game there in Birmingham. Correct. Yep. In the USL. So if if New England is comfortable with him letting him play center back for Birmingham and for Haiti. I have no reason why I shouldn't be in, a, in an emergency situation. We, we're okay with Brad Knight being the number two guy all the time. I have no problem with Zachary Harrell being the emergency center back if we're going to keep the two highest paid center backs on the roster uh, out of the 18 uh, for whatever reason that is. Um, you know, but uh, and uh, Nicholas Firmino, I, I, Nicholas Firmino is one of those guys where I want to see where he plays. Um, you know, is he someone you can put next to Carlos Gill as a uh, number eight type. Um, and then you have like a Luis Caicedo and a Scotty Cobble as a six. And, and that's sort of your midfield three with two guys out wide, one guy up top or, or some combination that thereof. Um, Nicholas Firmino at some point might be that guy who can partner with Gill and be a little bit more box to box number eight type. I'm really interested to see what he can do at this level, hopefully sooner rather than later. Open Cup game coming up here at some point. I don't think we know the fourth round matchups yet. Um, but yeah, I, I was intrigued by by the bench. Um, you know, as I have been intrigued with many things that the Revolution lineup has been doing the past couple weeks. Um, the bench seems to suggest, um, you know, you you have all these attackers on the field. That leaves you less attackers to, to bring on where really your only true, you know, I think pure uh, attacker would have been J.F. Caicedo. You have a lot more, you know, holding or defensive midfield types on the bench. Um, maybe you can say that Edgar Castillo is sort of a little bit of an attacking sub. At least you'd be okay with him uh, jumping into the fullback spot if needed. Um, but, yeah, it's very interesting. Like I said, the, the, the revolution balance right now between the, the players they have in attack the players who are available off the bench, what the balance is. Is, it, is the formation going to change? Uh, are there going to be two strikers? Uh, these are all questions that hopefully Bruce Arena will answer the next uh, month or so. Yep. And I'm not totally sure if we'll see Firmino come into a game unless the game has kind of been decided. If it was a 3-4 to four nothing game, maybe Firmino gets some minutes. I'm, I'm not sure how comfortable they are putting him into a you know, one nothing game or one one game where you need a goal. I'm not holding my breath that we're going to see him, but the fact that he's in the 18 uh, certainly has me excited that we might see him coming in soon. 
similar to, I, I mean, I remember anking last year getting, I think 30 minutes, uh, but he showed off some skills and uh, showed off some talent that I think a lot of people got really hyped about that, you know, in the future, this is a guy that's going to be a, a major part of the team. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Firmino get some, a handful of appearances and, and continue being carried, carried on the 18. Uh, so he can get some minutes uh, in and around the bench or, or in and off the bench, um, you know, towards the end of the year in some games that yeah. he decided. And I think um, we also, we need to give a lot of credit to, you know, Dewan Jones, the the past, you know, I think it's about 150 minutes since he, he came on very early um, for Castillo uh, last week uh, and then started this week. Um, for a guy who was not really supposed to be projected as a fullback, uh, he's doing very well at that spot. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to see if he can, if that can become a full-time role for him at his age, uh, that could be a starting spot for him for a while. Um, with this team, if he transitions into it that well, so that that's another thing we need to mention because um, yeah. we all saw that sauce that he had on that that sixty yard run with that nutmeg and and uh, deserved a goal. goal from that for sure. Deserved a goal for that. I forget who the guy from Montreal is who ruined yeah. that. It was Evan Bush. Evan Bush. Someone. Evan Bush. Yeah. Um, jerk. Evan Bush. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. Per- that was a really good save by Evan Bush. We should give him some credit for that. But terrible job. Evan Still Bush a jerk. Robbing, yeah. Robbing Dewan Jones of that pure sauce moment. Uh, yeah, I, I was actually going to mention Duan Jones, 70% pass accuracy. Uh, he had, he was seven for nine in the attacking third, but, uh, six for 13 on forward passes. So I, I think the knock on him a little bit earlier this season was his pass accuracy was not amazing. Still kind of showing some blips there, but did have nine ball recoveries. I, I did notice there were a couple of plays in the second half. I think it was around the 70th minute, 65th to 70th minute. Um, it was back-to-back plays too, where he was giving Acosta a lot of space on the wing. Uh, and it could have been exploited by DC. It didn't end up affecting the game too much. Um, but I, I think Dewan Jones, you know, still has to learn that, that positional defensively a little bit. Um, uh, but he certainly does excite you offensively. He certainly brings a lot of speed. Um, I, I think they're trying to do what they did with Brandon by, uh, at right back with Dewan Jones at left back. And, uh, you know, you mentioned he gets to start over Edgar Castillo. I think Edgar Castillo, I think he's 32, 33. Um, you know, he's on loan. I, I'm not really confident that Edgar Castillo is back next season. I know a lot of people are are not happy with his performance this year. I, I think Edgar Castillo did have a did contribute a little bit to the offensive side of the ball, and and I, mm-hmm. I think kind of the criticism of his him is totally harsh, or, or not not I shouldn't say totally harsh is a little harsh, um, and and not totally warranted. But uh, I think Dewan Jones has certainly certainly shown some flashes of potential, and I think they want to see what this kid can do. He's certainly a great yeah. athlete or rookie. Uh, and I think, yeah, you're right. I, th- I think he might be able to make left back a full-time role for him. Uh, so yeah, it's exciting. I think that goes along with the playing the kids and, and developing the youth uh, from the bottom up. Um, and it is worth noting that, you know, at left back at right back and at right wing, they had three super draft picks in the past two years. Um, yeah. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Super draft picks don't always pan out. And by always, I mean, a lot of the times don't pan out. There has no. been declining value in the draft year after year. And if the revolution have found two guys that turn into full-time starters at picks nine and 11, you know, I know not a lot of people are fans of Mike Burns and he's done a lot wrong over the years, but yeah. those two picks, um, are, are probably two of the only correct things he's done uh, in, in the past four or five years. I guess Brandon by makes three good things he's done last year, but yeah, um, if, super- if we go back and say like, look, okay, if we're just drafting pure athletes, if that was the whole goal of the Friedel Burns errors, I want athletes. I want to run a press. And on the back end of that, we turn three of those guys into competent, either outside backs or two way wingers or whatever it is. 
Um, that's totally fine. Uh, everyone, lest we forget how the revived 2014 revs came about, was AJ Source, number one draft pick. Andrew Farrell, number one draft pick. Kellen Rowe, number one draft pick. Homegrown player, Scotty Cobo. Homegrown player, Diego Fagundes. Waiver wire pickup, Lee Wynn. That's how New England built a team five years ago. And, and a blind draw. And, and like, okay, fine. I was, I was, I was <laughs> Didn't want to ruin you. I, but I get, I get what you're saying. Smart smart moves that aren't necessarily very expensive. Yes. And, and, and this is where if, if there was one thing that at some point we will probably praise Bruce Arena for continuing, and I still hate using this phrase because I'm still an Eagles fan and I hate the throwball team that we partner with in our NFL stadium. But uh, if there's one thing that, that the, the Patriots mentality has always brought, has always been very, very good or very, very savvy decision-making when it comes to acquiring players. And the draft picks and the waiver wires and the trades, all of those things are something New England has always killed at in the designated player era. Now, the problem is, is that, yes, you needed that blind draw to finally land the designated player to put all those things over the top. However, the point remains is that if you're going to rebuild, rebuild the best way that you know how. That is going to be get your draft picks, develop your draft picks, let them get as many minutes as possible. This includes USL. If Haravo and Firmino aren't making the bench, they should be in Birmingham or they should be in Hartford or they should be, I was going to say Rochester, but we can't send them to Rochester too, too anymore. Yep. 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 Sorry, I uh, pour one out for Brandon Doherty and the Rhinos. Um, but yeah, th- th- that's something where I think you're going to see, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, you're going to see the Arena Era Rebs move far more in on that type of, of development um, with some of these guys. If they're not getting minutes in the first team, they should be getting minutes somewhere else. And I really hope that's a trend that continues as part of, like you said, if you're going to play the kids, I don't care where we play the kids. If it's not New England, get a minute somewhere else. Yep. No, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. And, um, you know, it can't be stressed enough, too, that if we're praising – you know, the, the former Revs regime for bringing in young talent through the draft and homegrown signings. Uh, you know, I know our listeners are probably tired of hearing this, but um, they certainly had a big swing and a miss on Miles Robinson, who is, I believe he made the Gold Cup roster. Um, or at I least wanted, 40 I, wanted, I think, I think, I'd have to go and check my old uh, mock drafts um, for SB Nation. I want to say that maybe I wanted my, I wanted Miles Robinson. I wasn't going to get him. Um but yeah, that was that was something where it, that that idea of the Rebs trading up and getting Miles Robinson a couple of years ago, I would have done it because mm. you needed a center back, and now you're seeing okay, he is a center back, he is a defender. Um, yes, it's nice that we've taken some of these more attack minded players and turned them into fullbacks. Um, but one of the reasons why the back line is in that position is because you spent five years not signing defenders, not drafting defenders. Um, and even though you've solved maybe part of the problem in the short term, you still have a lineup consisting of effectively three fullbacks, including Andrew Farrell and Jaleel Anibaba, who's a MLS journeyman, and though I love MLS journeymans, um, maybe not the best spot to be in as you're starting a rebuild. Yep. No, certainly a lot of work to be done. But uh, yeah, we'll, only time will tell. But either way, it's really promising that they're kind of turning to the youth and, and building it up uh, from the ground up. And, and it seems like they're committed to doing a rebuild in the right way. And, you know, if they're not going to make the playoffs, let's see what we have in Firmino, Haravo, mm-hmm. Buchanan, Jones, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, Jake, you ready for some Twitter questions? 
Yes, let's do it. All right. Uh, Luke asks us, uh, what does JF Caicedo have to do to get in the starting 11? Teal makes a lot of mistakes in possession and looks low on confidence. We're, we're describing like every striker in the league right now, or so it seems like it. Um, <laughs> except for Chris Wondolowski. Chris Wondolowski now is just on fire. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. JF Caicedo would be one of those guys where if we're not going to play Teal up top, I want him to go up top. Um I almost kind of sort of want to see what a, what a JF Caicedo and a Buchanan uh, two-striker front can do. I don't know why I have this thought. I just I, – for some reason, I, just, I want to see what it looks like. Yeah. It might not be effective. It might not work. There are other things going on. Again, if you're going to play more 4-4-2, put two guys up front that maybe can work each other off each other a little bit. You know, Buchanan's got some speed. I think Caicedo's a little more of an all-around type. Neither of them are really, you know, poachers, but if you're going to get out and run a lot, you know, those are two guys you have running at goal that, that seem to be pretty confident and, and can score in a variety of different ways and have no problem, I think, taking shots. I want to see Buchanan, get, in particular, get farther, get closer up to goal in the formation and maybe getting him up front next to someone, even, you know, an Aguidelo might be a way to do that. Yeah, he was a goal scorer coming out of Syracuse, too. I mean, he mm-hmm. was a striker, so uh, moving him to the wing is... He, he did play a little wing in college, if I remember correctly, and I think they want to put him at the wing for his speed. Um, but I am I am curious to see Buchanan's uh, finishing ability and see if he can develop as a striker a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll find out, I guess, throughout the, the season if he, he moves up top. But moving to JF Caicedo, I wonder if the contract situation with him, he's on loan with a purchase to buy. I am pretty confident they're not going to buy him. Um, I think before the the, the season... Um, I, I, I don't know if you listened to this episode, Jake, but uh, we we're Seth and Sean and I were talking about uh, JF Caicedo and how well we thought he'd be, and we tried guessing his over-under, and I, I put the line at over-under five, and they mocked me, um, which it actually might be around that um, if JF Caicedo uh, continues to miss time. But my speculation was I, I could see this transaction being similar to Benjamin Angua, where you know it's a loan with a purchase to buy. It's someone nearing the age of 30, um, and kind of comes in, and if he doesn't have a great season, I, I don't think the Revolution are committed to him. So if the Revolution are looking forward to 2020, I wonder if Caicedo, is, Caicedo 2 is um, kind of a victim of circumstance where he's not in the Revolution's plans long term, and they're just going to return him at the end of the season. Um, and, and really, too, if they want to give, if they want to go full play the kids and move you know, Buchanan up top or play Brian Wright and see what he can do. Uh, maybe play Justin Wright, uh, Justin Rennix at striker. Um, maybe they return Caicedo early. I don't necessarily think so. And I don't think it's really well-deserved because I think Caicedo has had some really, really good moments and has scored some yeah. really nice goals. Uh, but you wonder if that contract situation is playing into why he's been moved to the bench. And, and also, I, I don't think it would be on, I mean, situation aside, I think it would almost be if you're not going to extend Caicedo or even or purchase Caicedo, if in the next couple of months he's still more stuck to the bench, I would almost ask him, you know, hey, we can terminate this loan early. Is that something you want to do? And I would right. bring him into that decision and say, if you want to try and go somewhere else in the summer window, let us know. We'll end this early um, to help you out. I, I don't feel like that should be something that should be off the table uh, unless for some reason the Reds are committed to the, to the season-long loan. If it's something where – Hey, we'll eat part of this contract if you want to get out of it and, and go back and try and find somewhere else. You know, let us know. I, I think there might be a few of those conversations going on um, as the arena era and the summer transfer window, you know, begins. You know, hey, there, is there somewhere you want to, you know, try and go? Is there a, a trade destination? Um, another team, you know, in you know Caicedo's case, you know, back home, there there a place you want to try and go to for the beginning of that season? You know, let us know. We can try and work on that. 
And, you know, he's 29. I think he would be interested in terminating a, a loan option or going back to Columbia or maybe being traded to another MLS team uh, mm-hmm. and play out the rest of his loan there. Um, if I were him and if you're not getting minutes and the team wants to commit to younger players, now, understandably, Teal Bunbury is not a younger player. So uh, that getting back to the question, why is Teal starting over him? Mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure. I think that maybe they just trust Teal and turning it around. And maybe Teal does more than J.F. Caicedo, who looks a little... I'll say sloppy, controlling the ball, and but but JF Caicedo has had some nice passes and has set up some nice plays. I I I would start Caicedo too over Teal Bunbury. I'm not totally sure why Teal is getting the start over Caicedo, but um, I mean I guess my speculation is just the Revs have already decided Caicedo is not coming back in 2020, and therefore they want to see if Teal can turn it around. Um, yeah, that that is my guess. I'm not totally sure why that is the case, but. We'll see. Uh, you, you think to a home game, a winnable home game against DC United, you know, I, I could see if you wanted to go with more of a defensive lineup, you know, maybe you go with a Teal Bunbury who can, you know, execute the press a little bit better, who can track back a little bit better, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, a home game against DC United, I don't know. I feel like you want your best offense players on the field. And I feel like Caicedo too is better than Teal Bunbury right now. So uh, it's a little, it's a good question. I'm not so sure, but anyway, um, Mike Kennedy asks us, uh, did Agadello do enough through his man of the match performance tonight to earn some more minutes? Thought he was excellent. Um, that was my key takeaway. I thought Juan Agadello was excellent, and I know we've given him some crap about where does he fit on the field. Uh, I, I, I'm going to repeat what I said at the beginning of the show. I, I think he's a full-time starter going forward. Jake, you agree? I don't disagree. Like I said, there, there's there's so many attackers. That there's there's a there's a home for, for not all of them in the starting lineup. So that means we either have to find someone in role or find someone, a, a starting position, whether it's a winger, whether it's outside mid, whether it's striker, whatever the balance is. I think Aguidel is a part of that. The question is, you know, is he the, going to be more of a right winger type or is he going to be more of a striker type? And I think you have to sort of figure out, do we want Aguidelo farther up the field or do we want his ability on the ball maybe more in the middle? Maybe you play him more as a weird um, false nine. Uh, maybe, you know, MLS.com thinks he's a, a central midfielder. Eh, let's try it. Uh, you know, the play the kids movement is here. Uh, we have, you know, enough weird games where we can experiment and do odd things like play Agudelo as number eight or as number 10 next to Gil as a number eight. Like the, there's so many different ways that this can play out that I am here for all the weird and all the ideas that we have from now until the end of the year. I don't need any of them to work. I'm just here to see all of them. Um, because this is sort of the beginning of the rebuilding process. What do you have? What do you what what players do you have that can play certain roles uh, in certain matchups? And you know, over the next couple of weeks, if New England isn't climbing up the standings, I would expect to see more you know weird ideas. Um, you know, Renix is an outside midfielder. Um, you know, Pinilla up top. Anything you can think of, you'll probably see it. And what's interesting, too, about Juan Agadello is, you know, we didn't really know where he fit in with the Brad Friedel era. I wonder where he fits in in the Bruce Arena era. Um, I wonder if Bruce is going to look at play Juan Agadello and kind of increase his value and move him elsewhere, or if Juan Agadello is going to be a staple of this team, or if he's going to kind of be in that kind of purgatory where that he's been in the past couple of years where he's putting in decent performances here and there and is moving around, like you said, and is kind of a utility guy. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see what Bruce Arena thinks of him. Um, it could be any three of those, in my opinion. So we'll see. Um, moving on, Randy asks us, given the no penalty call on DC earlier in the game, 
was the PK call on the Revs fair. Um, and I think, Jake, we're in agreement that both of those calls were called correctly. Is that mostly because Brandon Bayh's arm was up around the head, the DC defender was closer to the body. Is that correct? Yeah, again, in, in a vacuum, going back to where we started the show, in a vacuum, I think both calls are correct. Um, can we get to a point in, in the VAR era where maybe um, I think Brandon Bayh's is always going to be a penalty. I think the evolution of the handball rule, you might see the DC play eventually involved in into something maybe like an indirect free kick um, that you would see for, say, a goalkeeper picking up a ball, played back to him, that type of a, a rule where, look, it's not an intentional handball. Your arm is at your side, but your arm did block the ball. Even though it's a normal defensive position, maybe that's way where we figure out how to balance the, you didn't do anything wrong, but it's still a handball. Figure out a way how to maybe not make that play a PK, find the middle ground of, the weird free kick in the box. Yeah. Uh, Randy also asks us also, why can't Pena put a shot near the goal? And we kind of mm-hmm. talked about Pena 0 for 4 on his uh, shots in terms of hitting, hitting the target. Um, I don't, I meant to look up what his shot accuracy was this season. I know it's not very good. Um, I'm not sure. I, I think he's just taking further and further shots away and, and kind of more uh, low percentage shots, which we, we kind of talked about um, anything to add on onto that, Jake. No, just in general, some of it is is volume shooting, and and New England hasn't really been a great shooting team um, in general. Um, Some of the numbers that I'm looking at, Christian Pena has taken 16 shots all year. Only four of them hit the target, two of them scored. So that's not a great shot percentage or shot conversion ratio. Um, But there's also not anyone on the team that has been great at shooting. Um... Carlos Gill, I'm looking at the live stats right now. The team leader for the New England Revolution for shots on goal, 15 games in. Are we 15 games into the year? Oof, feels like it. Uh, 15 games. I feel games like I've aged 15 years. The, year. <laughs> the, the shot leader for the New England Revolution is Carlos Gill, nine shots on target for the entire year out of 25. Yep. Yeah, they're not creating many chances. It's no, it's been it's, a it's been a very rough season offensively. If we, if we want to convert, like you know, who right now is the most efficient shooter? JF Caicedo, Caicedo two is four of eleven, four shots on goal out of eleven shots. Three of those four have gone in. Yeah, and yeah. he's averaging JF Caicedo is averaging about point six goals a game based on minutes. I'm not really sure how that you know, works out, but it basically it's a goal every hour. Um, and that's pretty good. Pretty good compared to Teal Bunbury, who we were talking, comparing to, comparing to in the last much, question. Yeah, pretty good <laughs> compared to anyone else on the team, which is mostly bad. So yeah, yeah, not great, not great. But with that being said, in a way, in a weird silver lining, probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense way. I'm glad Pena still has the confidence to take shots and yeah. 50, 50% goal conversion when he gets a shot on target. So yeah, keep shooting. You like, know? yeah, more <laughs> shots, more shots lead to more chances, more chances lead to goals. I I'm a firm believer of this. We had this issue a couple of years ago. I think we're having this issue now. Get somewhere near the box, take a shot. If no one's open. Just shoot. No one cares. Uh, we have one more question about Christian Pena too. Uh, Cameron Uh-oh. Young asks us, when will Pena stop constantly crossing the ball with the outside of his right foot? He did it three times <laughs> in the first five minutes of the second half. I do. I have noticed he, he has this in his arsenal. It's a bit unique. Um, I, I don't actually know. I was trying to think about this when I read that. I don't know if I remember Pena crossing the ball with his left foot from the wing. I think he, that's just his preferred. 
crossing foot question mark um, but I will say I, I went back and I watched those three crosses early in the second half and I gotta say none of them were that bad and I believe one of them was his assist to Juan Agadello. so I don't mind him crossing it with his right foot I say do it all the time. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, it may, New England is not really a team that I think wants to be crossing the ball in the traditional sense of you get up the wing, you're in the corner, you cross the ball in the air into like the middle of the box. New England is not a classic team that does this. And I say this in theory because I think we, we do it far more than we should and we're bad at it. Um, so I have no problem. If Panini wants to put a pass for the outside of his foot, I don't care if it's high, if it's low, as long as it gets to someone or it's intended for someone and it's moderately effective, I don't care because the Revolution are not a great crossing team, in my opinion. They, they haven't been for a very, very long time. Um, right now, they're, they're barely a decent passing team in, in, the, in the average sense of the word um, because they hate having the ball. They don't like to pass. Um, so, yeah, however, however New England wants to set up their chances is perfectly fine by me as long as they result in chances and not throw-ins. I, boy, I sure hope that cross was with the right foot. I'm going to go back and look on the replay, and it's going to be a nice left-footed cross to Juan Agadello. I didn't write it down, but I'm pretty confident it was one of his right-footed crosses that led to that goal. So if not, boy, I'm going to look stupid. Um, I Actually, I think that's it for Twitter questions. It's a bit of a short week. Everyone's on vacation, um, including us. We had, Well, I guess we were on vacation last week. But regardless, uh, short listener question segment this week. Um, Jake, I almost called you Sean. I was really close to calling you Sean there. That would have been terrible. Uh, Jake, any final thoughts on this uh, Memorial Day weekend? No, you, you know. It, Not even a Bryant it, baseball shot? You blew, no, you, no, you no. We got, that, we got that in early. I just, I, I think it's very interesting that, that the, the, the transition from, from Bradfield to Mike Lapper in, in just three games, again, one win, no losses, two draws, two goals allowed. And this is the exact same team that either set the record for most goals allowed in three games, tied the record for most goals in four goals, whatever, or was very close to, to the five-goal game. Oh, this is the exact same group of players. I think we've discovered over the last three weeks the New England Revolution are not terrible at soccer. They are not the worst team in the Eastern Conference. They are still, however, nowhere near a decent soccer team or near a playoff spot, and I think um, – the DC game in particular um, proves that. I think this was a, a DC team that didn't bring its A game, uh, didn't play particularly well, and and, and it, it feels strange to think that the Revs squandered three points, um, but they did. And and I think most of those wounds were, were self-inflicted. Um, Matt Turner's red card, self-inflicted. I don't know what that was. Uh, the Brandon by penalty. Uh, again, I don't know what that was uh, either. Um but I think we also need to realize this is a team that we should allow them to make these types of mistakes. This is how um, far behind we were and how much farther we need to go uh, to get to that even just mediocre level. And maybe we're not there yet, but we're far closer to it than we were um, a month ago, I think, when I was last on. So um, I'm happy to see that. I'm happy the Open Cup is back. I'm happy Hartford is still in the Open Cup. Rematch with Memphis on uh, Wednesday, I believe it is. So pretty happy yeah and Hartford got their first win I think uh in between the time when you were last on and now so things yes. things really turn around in the past month I uh, I, I was at that was at the University yeah, of right. Hartford Open mm-hmm. Cup game against the Cosmos I covered that for uh Josh Alaka and the cup.us you can go and read that uh recap um head coach uh, Jimmy Nielsen 
former uh, SKC goalkeeper, um, really wanted a, a rematch with Memphis. Uh, Memphis had to beat the uh, Red Bulls under-23 side uh, MPSL team. Uh, they did, so now you're going to have Hartford versus uh, Memphis again. Um, in Memphis as the rematch, I believe that game is Wednesday. Uh, winner goes into the fourth round. Uh, I assume if Hartford wins, they'll be in the little regional group or pod uh, with the Revolution, but I don't know if they've announced those pairings yet. They might be waiting to see, um, maybe pick those pods like they would in the NCAA, pick the pods, pick the regionals, and then figure out what the matchups are. Yeah, and usually it's it seems like it's... I don't want to say rigged, but, you know, usually the Revolution play a team nearby. I know last year they played Louisville, but I think they played Rochester, what, like three years in the span of four or five years, you know, something like that. So, yeah. you know, I, I think there's a good possibility we see a Hartford-Revs uh, Revs game if there is a, a – if Hartford makes it that far. Um, I will just kind of quickly touch upon the uh, All-Star ballots came out, and I'm just very upset that Wilfred Zahibo is not listed on the ballot. Um, I was really hoping he would make a second All-Star game appearance, but – you can write in players. I I <laughs> hope you all join me in getting Wilfred Zahibo back to the All-Star game for is two this, straight years to represent this, the New England Revolution. Is this what happens when the Turner train gets uh, – Gets uh, derailed temporarily. It's, it's, derailed. Down for maintenance. Yes. it's down for maintenance, as I said. That's a terrible, terrible pun. I should boo that. Um, <laughs> this is what happens to the Turner train. We have to we have to do the uh, the John Scott All Star ballot right in. That's absolutely right. Yeah, right. that's um, a great comparison. Great. Wilfred Zebo is the MLS version. Is the of MLS John version Scott. of John Scott? See, yeah. here's the thing: is that I don't necessarily think that that's incorrect. And now I feel like maybe based on that logic that I brought up by accident, that maybe this is a good idea. Yes, it's a great idea. But again, the All Star Game, uh, as always, um, is uh, dumb, and uh, I'm going to be, as always, uh, my friend and I, Chris Brown, we do a uh, alternate uh, MLS uh, game hashtag. Um, so uh, this year, uh, since we're playing um, Atletico, I believe we have uh, the hashtag Attleboro v Atleti. Uh, or Attleboro for Athletic. I forget exactly how we set that up. Um, but our uh, alternate revs rooting for the other team to crush MLS hashtag uh, is out. And I'm sure a few people uh, will see that later on as we uh, we get closer to the All-Star game. And they'll also probably see the vote for Wilfred Zahibo hashtag that I will we can, start. We, we have, you'll have to work on a hashtag. You can maybe ask yes. Chris if there's a way you can find a, a witty hashtag, you know, besides like, you know, Kawasi for MLS ASG or something like that. I probably won't spend much time brainstorming it. It'll probably just be <laughs> hashtag vote for Zahibo. But regardless, uh, I hope you all join me in getting our uh, hopefully two-time MLS All-Star back to the game. Um, outside of that, I don't have a whole lot else to mention. I think this is uh, a bit of a wrap for us. Um, Jake, where can people follow you online? Uh, you can find me at jcatneys43. Occasionally, hopefully, this week we'll write for the Bent Musket. Um, because God, my work schedule sucks and I need to do that more. Um, and, uh, yeah, go uh, check out, uh, the cup.us, all the open cup, uh, matchups and recaps you could ever find for every team. All the amateur teams get covered. Um, all the minor league team gets covered all the way up into, uh, to the MLS level. So it's, uh, always fun working with those guys. And, uh, as always trying to make the open cup, uh, the massive, awesome tournament it deserves to be. Yeah, and and uh, I will also say too. I should have mentioned this in my final thoughts. Um, USA U twenty World Cup, uh, go USA! Uh, they're leading right now, one nothing on Nigeria. Justin Rennick's not playing, um, but <sighs> hopefully, hope yeah, I know. Hopefully, he gets some minutes. Uh, 
I don't know, sooner rather than later. They lost to Ukraine earlier this week, so it, it's not a sure thing that they move on from the group stage. But um, as I say, good, good news that they're uh, beating Nigeria right now. Um, you can follow us at Revolution Recap. Uh, also, follow the Bent Musket on Twitter at the Bent Musket, I believe. Uh, yes. But uh, we'll be back next week. I'm looking at the schedule right now. It looks like they're playing the LA Galaxy next Sunday at 10.30 p.m. So we will not have a podcast Monday morning like we normally do. I don't know when we will record a podcast i will try to get something done on monday or tuesday next week so you guys have a midweek pod before we take off for the international break uh but we should have a a podcast next week either way thank you everyone for listening uh, and go revs